Well, once again, good morning, everybody. How everybody's doing okay, I hope. Well, we find ourselves still in the book of Acts, and um, we are going to be in Acts chapter 8 today, but I'm going to flip back a little bit because um, I'm sure everybody was here last week, but Acts chapter 7 has a lot to do with what happens in Acts chapter 8. You remember uh, Pastor Kevin spoke last week, and he was the subject was the stoning of Stephen, one of the really kind of heartbreaking but incredibly inspiring um, pieces of scripture. And I went back and reread it because I wanted to read my way into chapter 8 um, before I thought about what I wanted to speak on. And I noticed something really interesting. I uh, emailed Eric and Anna uh, earlier this week, and I told them I came up with a title for my, for my talk today, and it was going to be called Unintended Consequences. Unintended Consequences. In chapter 6, verse 8, it talks about Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did wonders and miraculous signs amongst the people. And then right after that, it says, opposition arose. Isn't that just like the weirdest dichotomy? Like a man full of grace, a wonderful man who was doing wonderful things, opposition arose. <laughs> oh my goodness. And here's the interesting thing. The opposition was not from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem or in Judea. If you look at this, and this was super interesting, it said that the opposition came from something called the synagogue of the freedmen. And these were Jews, not from Judea, not from Jerusalem, but it says Jews of Cyrene, which is the Jews in Cyrene, which is Libya, okay, northern Africa, Alexandria, which is in Egypt, um, or Virginia, yeah. Um, Cilicia, which is in Turkey, and then it says in Asia. So the main opposition that was rising up and being active against Stephen, and not just against Stephen, but against the church, were not the Jewish leaders from Judea. They were the Jewish leaders from outside Judea. I think there's a reason for that. The Jewish leaders in Judea were probably keeping their heads down because they had crucified Christ and again, talk about un unintended consequences. We crucify this guy, we're done, right? Get him to the Romans, Romans will kill him. His leaders are all go, hey, we don't want that to happen to us. We're going home, and it'll be over. Oops, unintended consequences. It didn't put an end to anything. And in fact, the, those 12 apostles who were hiding and denying and doing all that other stuff, suddenly those 12 apostles get filled with the Holy Spirit and they're emboldened, and Jesus had told them, the same things that I do, you will do. And now suddenly there's not like one, there's 12. And suddenly that 12 are multiplying themselves. Remember, Stephen wasn't one of the 12. Stephen wasn't a disciple. Stephen was a convert. And so suddenly this is growing like wildfire, and not only wildfire, so to speak. Um, it's on my brain. <laughs> I go camping later today. Um, but not only... Was it, was it growing in that regard? But the, the church, not just spiritually, but through good works, and Pastor Kevin's covered that, that they were feeding. They were giving people a, a, you know, a place to belong. They were reaching out to the poor and the outcast, and incredibly positive things were happening. Now, if you're a Jewish leader in Judea, and you've already made that one mistake, and you're kind of like going, dang, I, don't, I still don't like this thing. And why? Because it threatened their position. It threatened their power. It threatened their, they had it wired. They were the ones on, on top, and now suddenly this was all getting turned upside down. They didn't like it, make no mistake. They didn't like it, but what are you going to do? Are you going to come out and start attacking this institution that's feeding the poor, that's reaching out to the downcasts? I mean, you would have a riot on your hands. So they were handcuffed, and they are kind of like, what are we going to do? But these dudes outside of Judea, they're the ones that started doing the agitating. And it says that the complaints that they brought against Stephen were false. They began to say false things against him to set him up. Now, here's what happened. So the Sanhedrin in Judea said, oh, okay, bring those complaints to us because we're the Jewish leaders. We'll judge them. And then if you are complaining, you know, then we'll take action based on your complaints. So I don't think it was uh, like, oh, accidental. I think they probably figured this out. So they bring uh, Stephen before 
the Sanhedrin, the ruling uh, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, make all these false accusations against him. Stephen speaks boldly. Stephen speaks the word of the Lord. And they drug him from that place, took him out, and they stoned him. I can't imagine a worse way to die, honestly. There's some pretty horrible ways people died in the Bible. I think if the Bible was ever like really a movie, you know, and they really should probably be rated X because you just, some of this stuff's horrific. But that's how Stephen was killed. And even as he was dying, he said, Father, don't hold this sin against them. Um, so I want you just to hold that thought for a second, that the chief accusers and those that came against Stephen were these Jews from other lands. Okay? Now we're going to flip over to chapter 8. Unintended consequences. And it says, on that day, and here's what I think happened. On the day Stephen was stoned, the persecution began. And I think that pent-up rage, that pent-up desire to lash out against these Christians. They didn't even call them Christians in those days. They were followers of the way. That's what they called it. This pent-up rage with the stoning of Stephen, suddenly there was legitimacy to their persecution because the lies that were told against Stephen were spread and it's basically, this is that institution that he was a part of, that he was serving in. And it said, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. So it wasn't, we talk about in the, when I worked for World Vision, we talked about in the, in the world of disasters, you talk about a slow onset disaster or a fast onset. A slow onset would be like a famine, okay? It just doesn't happen on a day. It, it progresses and progresses. A quick onset disaster would be a flood or an earthquake when that happens. This was not slow. This was a quick onset persecution on the day that Stephen was stoned. Persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Judea, the southern kingdom with Jerusalem as its um, capital, and in Samaria, the northern area that, and you guys all know kind of the story of the Jews and the Samaritans. They didn't really like each other very much. The Samaritans were the ten tribes that had divided from the kingdom of Israel. Uh, they were considered by the Jews to be not pure, um, and so there was, but this, so the bottom line was everybody was trying to get away. Go to Judea, go to Samaria, go somewhere, but everybody was trying to get away. It says, godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going, this is the first, well, second time we hear of Saul. Anybody remember the first time we heard of Saul? When Stephen was stoned. Saul held their coats. He says he didn't do it but he held their coats. So now the second time we hear of Saul. But Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. What do you think was the intent when this persecution started? We will end this, right? That was it. We will end this. We'll imprison them. We'll kill them. We'll bring such fear that we will put an end to this. But now let's read verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Oops. Unintended consequences. This is kind of gross, but not that I would ever compare anything to a roach. But, you know, if you ever have roaches in your house, never step on them. Did you know that? Never step on a roach. Here's why. If it's a female... Roaches are genetically designed that if you crush that female, her eggs will spew out, and you'll have a whole bunch of little roaches if you step on a female roach. Okay? Again, I hate to compare <laughs> the persecution of the church to a roach, but it's kind of the same concept. They stepped on the church in Jerusalem, and everybody scattered. And, every, and they didn't scatter in fear. They scattered in practicality. Okay, I would love, to, I, you know, there's so much practicality in the Bible, like to be practical. When David went to face Goliath, did he pick up one rock out of the stream? How many did he pick up? Five. 
David was a practical man. I might not get this dude with the first rock. Now he did, which is cool. He, put, he picked up five. He's a practical man. These early Christians, they were practical. It's like, hey, I still believe in what I believe, and I believe who Jesus is, was, and is. But I'm not hanging around waiting for Saul to knock on my door and drag me off. I'm taking my kids and my family, and I'm going to go here. I'm going to go up to Samaria where I have an uncle, or I'm going to go here. And they went, and they didn't go out of fear. They went out of practicality, and they didn't lose their faith. They were emboldened by their faith. And now suddenly, this movement that was really centered in Jerusalem, that's where it was kind of happening, explodes all through the region. Unintended consequences. We're going to stamp this thing out. Oops, didn't work out that way. Now, there's a couple of really cool stories that follow, and I'm not going to read it because it would take too long, but I'm just going to kind of tell you. And uh, I think now this comes to the story of Philip, right? So everybody that was scattered preached the word wherever they went, and then we get a couple of really cool stories about Philip. Philip is a cool dude. Now, here's the thing. I always assumed that Philip, this Philip, was Philip the Apostle. The disciple, Judy's shaking her head. He wasn't, was he? I always thought that. No, this was Philip who was elected as one of the seven. Remember PK talked about that, that they were trying to serve and whatever, and the apostles ended up being waiters and, you know, that they're clipboards and whatever, and they weren't even able to preach because the, the, social, act, the, the social help that they were trying to provide was taken all the time. So they picked seven men of great repute. Stephen was one of those, right? Yet one of the other ones was Philip. And Philip was a Grecian Jew. He was a Greek Jew. And if you remember that story, it was kind of the Greek Jews in Jerusalem that were saying, hey, it seems like all the Judean Jews are getting taken care of first, and then we sort of get what's left over. I don't really think that's fair. And so the disciples said, okay, well, let's, let's put together a group of seven you know, that'll monitor this and take care of this. And it was the Grecian Jews that were really kind of complaining. Well, Philip was a Grecian Jew. So kind of the perfect guy to ruin that argument, right? Like, well, hey, let's take a Grecian Jew and put him in the thing of seven, and we'll have fairness or whatever. So that's who Philip was. Remember, the Bible tells us the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So Philip didn't go. Philip, it was not Philip the apostle. Philip was a very common name. And in fact, amongst the Greeks, Philip was a really common name. Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. Did you know that? That was his name, Philip the Great. And so Philip was a very, very popular name all across uh, the, uh, the Mediterranean area because of that. So Philip takes off, and he goes to Samaria, which is kind of an unlikely place for a Jew to go, but that's where he decides to go. And it doesn't say what city he was in, but he was in a certain city, and he began to preach the gospel, and he began to do miracles. He was casting out demons. He was healing people, and in verse 8... It says, so there was great joy in that city. Philip brought incredible joy. He was doing many of the things that were happening in Jerusalem. And you have to believe maybe the Samaritans were hearing about this crazy group in Jerusalem that were helping the poor and helping the needy and, and lifting up the downtrodden. And now it's here. And they were super excited. So there was great joy in that city. Okay, I love this part. Now we meet one of the coolest names in the entire Bible. Simon the Sorcerer. Isn't that just a great name? Simon the Sorcerer. He was one of the guys that was living in this city. You couldn't even make that name up. I mean, I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I don't think I could even make up the name Simon the Sorcerer. So Simon's one of these guys that's living in that city. Now, Simon's an interesting guy, and it's just a total coincidence. I always take a book with me to Rimrock, right, that I can sit and the kids are, you know, out in the boat and they're doing and I'll read and, you know, just kind of relax. And the book that I happen to choose, it's a biography of Harry Houdini. And that's what I'm going to be reading when, uh, when I'm going to be at Rimrock. And Simon the Sorcerer was like the Houdini of Samaria. He was a magician. He could do tricks. And, you know, when Houdini, if you've ever known anything about Houdini, late 1800s, early 1900s, it was the age of spiritualism in America. I mean, that was a huge, seances and spiritualists and mediums were a huge thing in the late 1800s, early 1900s, in Europe and in America. And Houdini was such an amazing magician that many people said, basically, Houdini 
taps into the spirits. That's the only way he can do what he does. How does he get those handcuffs off? How does he get out of that straitjacket? How does he go into that closet and then appear in the balcony, you know, behind us? How does he do that? He's got to be in touch with the spirits. Simon the sorcerer was the same dude. I, I guarantee you, Simon, I don't think Simon had any diabolical whatever. He just was a sleight of hand guy with his card tricks. And the people were like, hey, it's impressive. So Simon had power. And suddenly this dude Philip comes along. And Philip's doing stuff way better. And so it said that basically Simon followed Philip everywhere. And why do you think? Yeah, I'm going to figure out his tricks because I can add it to my repertoire or whatever. So, uh, so people are accepting Christ and they're being baptized. And guess who accepts Christ and gets baptized? Simon. Now, I tend to think, I'm just going to say this. I could put myself in Simon's. I'll write a story about Simon one of these days. I think Simon was legit. I think, I think he was. I think he was still, you know, what the heck is this dude about? But I think he was legit. He accepted Christ, and he got baptized. And then, back in Jerusalem, the apostles are hearing, dang, did you hear the news out of Samaria? Philip's up there, and holy smokes. You know, everybody's getting converted, and they're this, and they're that. And uh, so Peter and John go, well, we better go up there. And I think they went up there for a couple reasons. One, they were probably super excited. Two, they were probably super worried. Because <laughs> remember, this whole thing had been so contained. Jesus, right? And then Jesus is gone. And then them. And what was going on here? Now suddenly, it's everywhere. So I think they were probably like excited. But I think they were probably more like, what's Philip doing? This guy, you know, we're hearing all this stuff. And here's the interesting thing. The people that were getting saved and were getting baptized by Philip, it said that they had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. They had believed, and they had been baptized, but they had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a sermon someday that I'm going to talk about. I don't have time today. But that act, you know, is Jesus fire insurance against hell, or is he your Lord and Savior? Wow. That's a, you know what? That's a different thing. The book of Romans tells us, don't be conformed. In fact, I'm going to read it. I think I put my, I'm going to read it. If I can flip over to my book of Romans here. Romans, you don't have to go there, but remember this. Romans 12, 2, very famous. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. Accepting Christ as Savior and making Him your Lord are two different things. They're two different things. It's the acceptance of the Holy Spirit and asking Him to basically, I'm not going to control, I control the fact that I made this decision. Now I don't control anything. You control. I want to know your perfect will. I need you to transform my mind to do that. And I will tell you this, if you have not had your mind transformed, you will have a very hard time understanding what the will of God is because the will of God does not think like men. Amen? Amen. The will of God, the thoughts of God, the desires of God, the move of God are very different from our temporal, fleshly, selfish, sinful minds. Have your mind renewed and then you will know the perfect will of God. So the acceptance had happened in Samaria, but the Holy Spirit hadn't come. So Peter and John come. They see this is awesome. This is amazing. And they begin to lay hands on the people, and the Holy Spirit comes. And now these individuals are full of the Spirit of God, and incredible things are happening. So Simon is watching this. I believe Simon was a convert. I believe he accepted Christ. I believe he was baptized. But you know what? Simon had not had his mind renewed. Simon had not yet gone through that receiving the Holy Spirit. And he sees what the apostles are doing, and he goes to John and Peter. And what does he do? He offers them money. He says, I want to be like you. And in his fleshly, worldly mind, I think he was totally sincere. But that's how you do it. You want something, you buy it. And Peter and John rebuke him. You and your money, 
you know, blah, blah, blah. Peter just lays into him. And after Peter lays into him, Simon stops and he says, please pray for me that the things that you just said won't happen to me. And I believe, it doesn't say, but I believe that Simon had an honest transformation at that point and was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say that, but I really do believe that. Because I think Simon was legit in his desire. But look at the difference between not, I mean, accepting Christ, but not having your mind renewed. But then having a renewed mind and suddenly seeing the will of God. There is so many dichotomies in what Christ would have us do and be and how we would be. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind because then you will know God's perfect will. And without that, frankly, we might be saved, but we are rumbling, bumbling, stumbling and making a freaking mess. Okay? And people look at the church and they look at Christianity and they go, I don't want to be that. It's unattractive. I wonder, man, there just needs to be a resurgence of the Holy Spirit in the church that our mind is renewed. And we've just become political and we've become judgmental and we've become all of these things instead of basically saying, God, reveal it to me. What is your will? What's your will? Because it's probably going to be really different than mine. Philip gets done in Samaria. An angel appears to him. Philip's a cool guy. Angels appear to him. And he says, Philip, go to Gaza. And what does Philip say? Okay. <laughs> Philip's just, Philip's, I love Philip. He's this cool guy. So he heads to Gaza, which is this, down to the south. You know, it's kind of between Egypt and, and, uh, and uh, Israel. And he's walking along the road, and there's this chariot sitting by the side of the road. And this Ethiopian guy. And this Ethiopian dude was dressed because he was a eunuch to the queen, Queen Candace of Ethiopia, and he was her treasurer. He was a Jew, apparently. Or I don't know if he was a Jew, but he was a believer somehow because it said he came to Jerusalem to worship. That's why he was there. That's kind of a weird thing. I don't really know what was going on uh, with him, whether he had been um, touched by Judaism somehow or whatever, but it said he basically came to Jerusalem to worship, and he was going home. And he's sitting on his chariot. You can just see him. He's got his sandals. His legs are crossed, you know. And he's got a scroll open in front of him. And he's like, and Philip walks up goes, hey, how you doing? And they start to talk. He goes, what you reading? He goes, oh, I'm reading the book of Isaiah. He goes, oh, good book. I read that. Yeah, it's good. And the Ethiopian goes, well, I'm a little confused. And he's, uh, so he starts to, um, and Philip goes, well, what part are you reading? Because that's a pretty big book. And uh, I'm throwing all this dialogue in, obviously. But he says, well, I'm reading this thing, and it says, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb to the shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Because I'm confused. Is he talking about, and the Ethiopian says, is he talking about himself, or is he talking about someone else? Philip goes, ah, let me tell you. And Philip tells them all about Jesus. And they begin to kind of take this journey together. I don't know whether they decided to go for a walk or whether they, they were in the chariot. It doesn't say, but they were kind of journeying together. And so Philip is just telling him all about Jesus. And they come to, it's just as a body of water. Now, was it a lake? Was it a pond? Was it a runoff <laughs> catchment? Who knows? But the Ethiopian goes, hey, there's some water. Can I be baptized right now? Philip goes, yeah. You know what that reminded me of when I read that? We, uh, you know, we always take the youth group on mission trips. We've been doing, I've been doing mission trips with Wildfire since 1998. One year we had gone to Ensenada, Mexico, and we were driving back. And if you've ever driven into Mexico and then driven back, you'll know that they have checkpoints in Mexico, not just the border. They have checkpoints and they're looking for contraband and all that stuff, you know, even when you're heading back to the United States. And so these are uh, federales, Mexican federal police. And so we get out of the van, and we had one person that could speak Spanish, um, this one pastor that was, uh, that was down. I can't remember his name. We were just talking about him the other day, too. Oh, he's such a great guy. Um, African-American guy down there speak, working in Mexico. And uh, so the federales, so we kind of step aside in the federales. And so my son, 
was with us on that trip. And if you know Jared, my son, my wife is Hispanic, and so Jared looks really Hispanic. In fact, Jared, I was telling Jared, man, Jared's scary. Jared's nice. He's super nice, but he looks scary. He's big, and he's dark. He's got a, now he's got a beard, and he's got tats and all that stuff, but uh, he was probably 15 then. But, he, you know, he looks Hispanic, and so they might have been thinking, hey, are they, are they trying to take one the other way? You know, who knows? Um, so he starts talking to my son through the interpreter, like, why are you here? What, do you, what did you do? Da, da, da. And Jared starts to tell him that we were down there to minister and minister to a church. You were down there, weren't you? Yeah, Claire was down there. And um, Avon, I think, was down there too. And uh, so Jared's kind of telling him and, and the pastor's translating and whatever, and this is what we did and this is who we are. And, and this federale with his weapon and a couple of the other federales there said, do you think Jesus can love and save a man like me? And, you know, we said, yes, absolutely he can. And he handed his gun to one of his, this absolutely true story, handed his gun to one of his compadres, bowed his head, and accepted Christ. Right there in Mexico. Right there in Mexico. So every time I read this story about the Ethiopian eunuch, I always think of that, that the truth confronts you and I, so in the same way, this guy goes, can I do it? Hands his gun, rah, 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 he does it. There go by, here's this body of water. I don't know what it was, a pond or whatever. And the Ethiopian goes, can I be baptized? Philip goes, sure. <laughs> I love Philip. They climb down out of the chariot, into the water, and he's baptized. And then Philip's gone. <laughs> Philip, like, disappears. So the Ethiopian was, he probably came up out of the water, and he's all by himself, like, you know, what just happened? Uh, but, you know, it's it, this, and I think the reason why these stories of Philip follow the stories of the scattering is that uh, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, is giving you just a flavor of what was happening. And I think what Philip was doing was happening everywhere. Not I think, I know it was. But we just get these stories of Philip because they're so cool. But now multiply this by how many thousands of people fled with their faith intact, and we're doing these same things all around the region. I mean, it's actually pretty incredible. If you, in fact, if you flip over to Acts 11, verse 19, now again, I'm gonna, I told you to hold in your minds who were the Jews, who were the people that were um, bringing accusations against Stephen. It was these Jews from Turkey, Libya, uh, you know, Asia, Alexandria. So we're going to stamp this out, doggone it. We're going to persecute this church, and it's going to be the end, blah, blah, blah. But then you read verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. But some of them, however, were from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? That what man would intend for evil, God would turn to good. You know, the joy of the Lord is one of the things that's promised to us as Christians, right? The joy of the Lord. And I think, frankly, again, that receiving of the Holy Spirit is where you really receive the joy of the Lord. And to me, the foundation of the joy of the Lord, and I, I picked this verse when I, be, I became a Christian when I was um, 19, and somebody encouraged me at that time. They said, hey, pick a life verse. Pick, pick a verse that you'll just say, like, I'm going to build my life on this verse. I, I have a lot of friends that I know have done that. And so the life verse that I picked was Romans 8, 28. For we know that the Lord works together all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is the foundation of joy. Everything that happens to me, even the things I don't like, even the things I wish weren't happening, God is going to work for good. God is going to work for good. I may not see it in my lifetime. I might not see it in my experience. But if my mind has been renewed, I know that God returns nothing empty. Amen? Amen. Nothing empty. And I may not see the results of that, but my joy is based on the fact that my God is faithful and he keeps his promises, and this is going to be for good. 
even this thing that I wish hadn't happened, even the mistakes I make, even the things, the mistakes I make. We talked about this at Teen Challenge Thursday. One of the names of Christ is the Redeemer. And that wasn't just one time on the cross. Our mistakes are redeemed, and God works them for good. Even our mistakes, even our scars, amen, guys? Our scars that we bear are a sign that we've been healed. And then our scar becomes our credibility to somebody else that has that wound. You can be healed because I had that wound. And let me tell you about the healer. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Unintended consequences. Every disciple that followed Jesus was martyred. Died a pretty horrible death. And I remember reading that as a young Christian going, dang, I'm not sure this is a great gig. You know, I mean, you guys were crucified upside down and killed with spears and torn apart by horses and wild animals. It's like, wow, I don't know that that sounds all that cool. Um, But think about this for a minute. Now, Stephen, I don't know if Stephen ever heard Jesus preach. He might have. You know, he might have heard Jesus preach and had been one of those people that were following and then accepted. But let's pretend for a minute Stephen didn't, that he was a Pentecost convert, right? When the, when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples, let's say he never heard Jesus preach at all. He only knew of him through the stories and through the testimony of the apostles. And he believed, and he believed. Stephen was martyred for his belief. Amen? It's what he believed. And he was killed for that, and he didn't waver from that. And in fact, his dying breath was, forgive those that are killing me. Pretty amazing. Think about this for a minute. Stephen was martyred for what he believed. The apostles, the disciples, were martyred for what they knew. They walked with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They participated in his miracles. They knew who he was. They knew what he did. If Jesus had been Simon the sorcerer, the sleight of hand artist, oh, remember those 5,000 we fed? Well, we hid those baskets down in the gully and brought them out at the right time, and everybody thought Jesus did a miracle. We pulled a fast one on them. If, oh, that tomb that they put him in had a back door. He came out, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, hey, <laughs> we got him on that one, didn't we? <laughs> That leper, all that makeup he washed off when he dunked himself in the stream. Oh, they thought he was healed. (laughs) We started this new religion. Boy, those guys are dumb. They would know that, wouldn't they? Because they were there. If that had been Jesus' gig, they would know. Every one of those men went to a martyr's death for what they knew. And I don't know about you, but if it was me, And if I knew that everything Jesus did was fake and there's like 25 wild dogs that haven't been fed in a week and somebody says, you either recant or you're going in there, I'm going, yeah, let me tell you about the baskets that we hid. Let me tell you about the fake leper. I'm not going in there for a lie. Are you? No. You're like going, it's fake. Sorry, sorry, only kidding. Time. (laughs) Right? Time out. Every one of those men went to their death for what they knew, and none recanted. The only one that didn't die a martyr's death was John, and John was boiled in oil and exiled to the island of Patmos, where he received the revelation. What was intended to stamp out that religion only brought incredible credibility to the words of those men so that everybody that heard it knew it wasn't a lie because you don't die for a lie. You don't martyr yourself for a lie. Unintended consequences. Unintended consequences. Now let's talk about unintended consequences. Unintended consequences is a... I don't know if this is a good example to use in church, but... It's like a saloon door. You ever go through a saloon door in the Old West? You open those doors and walk in, but when you walk out, they swing the other way, don't they? Saloon doors swing both ways. 
unintended consequences swing both ways. There's a great saying, it's not in the Bible, but maybe it ought to be, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. There are things that people intend for evil, for harm, for hurt, that God redeems and makes them good. There are things that we intend for good. We think they're the right thing to do. We think they're awesome, and they're not. And the unintended consequences are something negative, something bad. I'll give you a great example. Uh, Grace and I uh, love Hawaii. Been to just about, I've been to every island except Lanai. I think Lanai is kind of boring unless you're rich and play golf, and I'm not rich, and I don't play golf anymore, so I don't think I'll ever go to Lanai. But I've been to, I've been to Maui and all the other islands, and one of my favorites is Molokai. Anybody here ever been to Molokai? I love Molokai. Molokai is like, there's no hotels, there's no high-rises, there's one traffic light on the whole island. It's just pretty much what it is, and they grew pineapple, and they grew sugar cane and stuff on, on Molokai, and we're on Molokai, and uh, we're on this one, and all the beaches are just like, you know, you just drive till you find one, and you know, there you go, and you just unload your stuff, and you're there, and there's probably nobody else there. It's really cool, and um, I'm sitting on my towel and reading or whatever, and all of a sudden, I hear this rustling in the corner. Here's, here's this little critter, like, rump, rustling through the, through the leaves, and it's like a, it looks like a weasel. And he's, you know, rustling through the leaves. And I'm like, what the heck? So I go back to the hotel and I ask this kid. I say, hey, I saw this animal. It was like funky weird. And the guy goes, oh. He goes, that's a mongoose. I go, it's a mongoose? And he goes, yeah. Let me tell you the story about the mongoose. They're also on Maui. Uh, and they're also on Kauai. Oh, actually, they're not on Kauai. Sorry, they're on Maui. They're on Lanai. And they're on Molokai. So... Molokai, I'll just tell the story of Molokai. Molokai, they raised sugarcane. Maui, they raised sugarcane. Big, huge sugar crop. In fact, read your history. The reason why Hawaii is, belongs to the United States is because of sugar, because we stole it from the Hawaiians. They had a sovereign government. They had a queen. And the sugar interests in the United States basically decided that we didn't want their control. We wanted our control. They convinced the folks in Washington that there was an uprising and blah, blah, blah. We went in. We took it. We made it a territory. We made it a state. We stole it from the Hawaiians. Sorry. That's not very sanitized history, but it's true. Um, so when the sugar industry was going and people were making huge fork fortunes in sugar, the ships would come and they'd unload supplies and they'd take the sugar back. And whenever you have ships, what little animals do you have? Rats. They get unloaded in the baskets that get unloaded. If you have a rope that's tied to the dock, they ever seen a rat walk across your telephone lines? They'll shimmy down there. There's no predators in Hawaii. There's, there's no predators. So the rats are just going nuts after you know, a few <laughs> generations of rats don't take very long either. And then the rats are going nuts, and they're eating the sugar cane, and they're destroying the crop. And you know, these rich dudes are like going, holy smokes, these rats, we got to do something. What can we do? You can't go into the fields and shoot them. I mean, what do we do? And somebody comes up with this awesome idea. There's this creature in India. That's where mongoose, mongooses, mongoose, mongoose are from. What if we got a bunch of mongooses and brought them over and turned them loose in the fields and they'll eat the rats and mongoose are cute and rats terrible, and mongoose are carnivores. They won't eat the sugar cane. They'll eat the rats. Great idea. Somebody takes a ship, goes to India, brings over a bunch of mongooses, and sets them free in the sugar cane fields. Problem solved. Good idea. Unintended consequences. Because rats are nocturnal. That's why we don't really see them during the day, but at night, they do their stuff. Mongoose aren't nocturnal. They sleep at night. So unless it was like dusk or dawn where they sort of crossed over, the mongoose weren't going to eat the rats. They were sleeping. <laughs> Not only that, mongoose are carnivores. So they didn't eat the rats, but those little cute geckos that sell insurance, they started eating all the geckos. <laughs> and uh, the birds, you know what else mongoose like? Bird eggs. They super like bird eggs. You know, the Hawaiian birds, the native birds, they nest on the ground. Why? They have no predators. Why am I going to build a nest way up there? I'll build it on the ground. Nobody's going to bother it. Mongoose love bird eggs. Suddenly, 
native species of birds started disappearing off the islands. And to this day, trying to control the mongoose is a huge expenditure of money in Hawaii because the mongoose are everywhere. And we saw them all the time when we were on Molokai. Unintended consequences. Unintended consequences. Can I read you guys a story? Sure. Thanks. I'll read it to you, Janet. Uh, so I want you to think about that issue of unintended consequences. And this story is called The Gator in the Garden. Ephesians 5, 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Once upon a sunny day, as wrens and robins call, a woman with a gardening pail, straw hat and parasol, descends a dusty, well-walked path that leads from her back door, past the barn, the water trough, and chickens by the score to where the land is moist and rich along the water's edge, bordering the bayou on a flat and fertile ledge. There in perfect well-laid rows as green as Irish spring, her garden stretches left and right, a growing joyous thing. Setting down her bucket, taking up her trusty trowel, she paused in mid-maneuver. On her face she wears a scowl. For as she scanned the garden, a catastrophe is viewed. Her carrots, lettuce, celery have been nibbled on and chewed. Suddenly, this perfect morn is not so bright and sunny. She cries in her frustration, Oh, you blasted little bunnies! <laughs> season after season, like a sunrise, without fail, she battled a contingent of voracious cottontails. Safeguarding her vegetables, she mounted a defense putting up a scarecrow and a chicken wire fence. They deftly bounded over, the impediment refused, and as for Mr. Scarecrow, they had eaten both his shoes. <laughs> and when she built it higher to frustrate the hopping thief, they'd simply done what bunnies do and burrowed underneath. Every last endeavor to prohibit or defend just melted into failure, and her wits were at their end. I need some force or strategy to break their thieving habits. I'd sell my soul to find a way to finally stop these rabbits. As that cry hung in the air, a funny thing occurred when by an ancient cypress tree, an answering voice was heard. Why, madam, I commiserate, admire your resistance. I trust it's not too forward if I offer my assistance. Turning toward that gnarled tree, she saw no form or face until she dropped her searching gaze where roots surround the base. There, she saw to her surprise, this wry communicator was a rather large and scary-looking alligator. Startled to her very core, she fought to reconcile this helpful proposition from a dangerous reptile. Madam, said the alligator, I know what you are thinking. Have I braved the sun too long? Is my cognition sinking? I hastily assure you all is well within your mind. It's those pesky little rabbits, sneaky, greedy, and unkind. You need a potent, active, and adept collaborator. Well, here I am, asserts the urbane alligator. Well, never mind the obvious phenomenon of speech coming from this wooing crocodilian on the beach. Even more amazing, I can't help but be a scoffer, the woman now is weighing and considering his offer. How exactly would you do it? Keep the cottontails at bay. Stop the little bandits from their dinnertime forays. And what's your compensation? asked this keen negotiator. I scarce believe that you're a philanthropic alligator. Madam, you are priceless. I'm tickled and impressed. Nothing is beyond your wit or wisdom, I confess. Uh, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. That is the key. All that really matters is your plot is rabbit-free. Details are a bother and a mental agitator. So below your station, said the chatty alligator. I'll fulfill the bargain. Don't you fret, my little dumpling. 
And as for compensation, well, I'm sure I'll think of something. Judging her expression to be moving towards consent, he said, I've just a trifling small provision to present. Of course, I'll need admission to the segments of your farm, the hen house, stable, pens, corral, the duck pond, and the barn. Anywhere those little bunnies may withdraw or burrow. Not for my sake, mind you. I'm just trying to be thorough. Well, never one to dawdle or be called procrastinator. The woman gave an eager answer to the alligator. I believe your anti-rabbit game plan has appeal. And so, my crocodilian friend, I think we have a deal. I'm sure you'll understand if we don't steal it with a shake. Not that I don't trust you or think liberties you'd take. Not at all, fine lady. Your good sense could not be greater. And so, talked off for now, said the departing alligator. Days roll off the calendar as time goes neatly by. The woman checks her garden neath a clear and sunny sky. Everything's in order. Not a leaf is out of place. The produce is maturing at a ripe and rapid pace. Corn and beets and peas and squash, potatoes, herbs and mints, all emerge from fertile ground, quite free from rabbit prints. Ha! She cried ecstatic. That'll teach those little raiders. No amount of bunnies are a match for alligators. Pleased with her arrangement to control the little pests, she wanders to the hen house, time to gather from the nests. Huh, she says confounded, where did all the chickens go? <laughs> Maybe to the duck pond or the pasture down below. Strolling to the pond, the sight bewildered and it caught her. She saw no ducks or geese, but just some feathers on the water. Bothered by this venue with no swimming fowl afloat, she hurries to the meadow where she keeps her sheep and goats. Scattered fleece and damaged bells lie strewn upon the ground. Though she searched the grassy field, no sheep or goats were found. Misgivings soon occur to her. They fill her with alarm. Off she races to inspect the balance of her farm. No piggies in the pigsty. No cows within their stalls. Her faithful dog won't come, no matter how often she calls. Even where the songbirds usually populate the trees, resonates a silence carried heavy on the breeze. Back she rushes quickly to her garden by the lake. What she sees beneath the trees brings on a double take. The fate of all her animals, she has an indicator when she spies the fat, rotund, and well-fed alligator. Moving to confront the beast, she shouts, Where is my stock? Chickens, pigs, goats, and sheep, the barnyard herds and flocks, every foal and calf and chick and piglet, lamb and kid. Please don't tell me that you managed what I think you did. Lying on his swollen belly, bloated, near obscene, the ailing alligator comments, why, I don't know what you mean. Don't play coy with me, she shouts. You fooled me. You're a con, promising to help, and now my animals are gone. You fraud, you cheat, you swindler, you monstrosity, she cried, deluding and deceiving. You bamboozled me. You lied. Branded as a scoundrel, an agreement violator, he became an outraged and indignant alligator. Madam, I am overwrought. You cut me to the quick. I am not some charlatan performing pranks or tricks. My rabbit-ridding services were just as advertised. And as for who and what I am, that never was disguised. How can you cry rascal, villain, miscreant, traitor, when after all you knew you'd made a bargain with a gator? You should have been more thorough, more attentive and judicious. And as for all your animals, well, they were quite delicious. <laughs> Shoulders slumped in disbelief, the woman turned to leave, walking the impoverished, barren path of the deceived. With her world in tatters and her heart an empty crater, she will long regret her choice to trust an alligator. 
No fine diamond ever came from shaping rough basalt. No fresh water ever flowed from springs discharging salt. Trees that render bitter seeds unfailingly declare the fruit that is its nature, that's the fruit that it will bear. Unintended consequences manifest and harden when we foolishly invite a gator to our garden. Unintended consequences. They swing both ways, don't they? Romans 8.28 is our promise. God will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That what this beautiful story in Acts tells us is the harder they tried to stamp out God's church, the greater it expanded. Um, and the people were, you hear about persecution you know, around the world, and you know, it's so interesting when the church is persecuted, even today is when it grows. Isn't that crazy? When the church is persecuted is when it grows. Let's have our minds renewed. Amen? Amen. Let's have our minds renewed. And remember that that door of unintended consequences can swing the other way as well. Let's have our mind renewed so that we understand and can interpret and know the will of God. Bounce that off other people who you trust and who you know. Have accountability in your life. Have an accountability partner with somebody you can say, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Here's my attitude. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? Seek wisdom from those and incorporate that into who you are and what you do. Because we don't want that. We want that door to swing the way of grace. We want that door to swing the way of Romans 8.28. We don't want it to swing the way of the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Let's have our minds renewed. Amen? Amen, amen. amen. Lord Jesus, I just pray for all of us that your Holy Spirit would renew our minds. And that's not just something that happens once. That's something we can and should pray for on a daily basis, maybe even more than once a day. God, renew our minds. Give us your mind. Let us see people and things and circumstances and opportunities and challenges and whatever they may be in the way that you see them. And we may not always understand what that is, but God, may we walk in faith and take those steps um, because we know we have a God who returns nothing void to us. Nothing will come back empty. Thank you for the joy that you promise us that all things will work together for our good if we are called according to your purpose, if we have that renewed mind that you will make all things good. What a great promise. We should go from this place today incredibly joyful. But also, as the Bible says, we should be as innocent as does and as shrewd as serpents. We should be joyful because we have your promises. And Lord, we should be mindful that we, that we until we are reunited with you in heaven, we are, we are beings that long to know you and love you and do your will, wrapped in fallen flesh with temporal minds. And that's a battle that will be ours until the day that you give us new bodies. So, Lord, we just would pray that uh, we would constantly be seeking after you. We want that door to swing one way. We want that door to swing towards you. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. amen. Everybody have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday.